Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? It's Tuesday again, and that means it's time once more for the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesomeness of some very cool plant people and some very interesting plant topics. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the plant sciences. And as always, y'all, I'm so excited to be with you today. It's March, and it's the fourth Tuesday in March, and that means it's time for our monthly Q&A. So over the past few weeks, people have been sending in questions, and if you have a question that you would like answered on one of these Q&As, this can be about plants, about your garden, about podcasting, specific things from any of our episodes, or just about me or whatever if you're interested in me for some weird reason, I'd be happy to answer them, and I'll give you a shout-out on the show. So we're going to go ahead and do the thing. So uh, I don't really have a lot of opening stuff, except that I think you should send in questions because that'll make sure that I can keep doing this and I won't just have to make stuff up. I am not above making up a question and, and a fictional person that asked it so I can answer it, but I'm not doing that today. I got some real questions. And if you want me to keep having real questions to answer, please send them to me. I would very much appreciate it. So let's go ahead and listen to some music and then let's jump into the March 2022 question and answer episode where we'll be talking about working in a greenhouse, plant nutrition, music for plants, live oak trees, and fruit trees. All right, let's go. Okie dokie. Hey, this should be fun. I actually really enjoy doing this. I think it's pretty cool. So let's do the thing. So my first question for today is from La Petite Shaman at Rodri3M. And she asks, will you hire a greenhouse gremlin? Now, I, I imagine a greenhouse gremlin is the helpful kind, not the kind that you would see in old like Bugs Barney, Bunny cartoons where they hang out on the wing of planes and hit them with hammers and stuff. And, and, and maybe that's what they mean. I don't, I don't exactly know, but I'm thinking a helpful greenhouse gremlin who can do greenhouse things. But the real question I think is, is it possible to have a career in plant science without having a higher degree? I think this is actually a really great question because when we talk about businesses and we talk about different fields, I think there is a lot of I had a stigma maybe around having higher degrees. Clearly, I got a lot of degrees. That was a thing that I did. I collected them like they were Beanie Babies. And I ended up with a PhD in plant science. But do you really need that? Do you really have to go get your bachelor's or master's or whatever to be a plant scientist? And I think it depends a little bit on what you mean. Now, to answer your first question, yeah, I, I do hire greenhouse gremlins. I call them undergrads. And uh, most of my student assistants here at Texas Tech at the Greenhouse are student workers. And by most, I mean all. Now, some of them are graduate students. Some of them are undergrads. But they're all Texas Tech students. We look at this here, at least in my specific instance, as an opportunity to teach students in a lot of ways. And while they work for us, we try to train them in as many like job skills and life skills and those kinds of things as possible. So education sometimes gets very theoretical, which I, I get. That's kind of how it works. But being able to work on campus and work at a place like this, whether or not you're really 
completely interested in going into plant sciences, it's a good way to pick up some practical life skills. So the short answer, I think, is no. You don't need higher education. You don't need a degree in plants or horticulture or botany or whatever to work in the plant sciences. I think, however, it does to a certain extent maybe limit the things you can ultimately do. So what I mean by that is plants are pretty accessible, I think. I think the entry barriers to working with plants and working in this field are pretty low. You can go get a job at the greenhouse or at a greenhouse if you want to be a landscaper. Technically, all you need is like a pickup truck and a shovel and the ability to dig a hole and plant a plant. And congrats, you're landscaping. I think where some of the rub comes in is that we try hard uh, as horticulturists and as plant sort of a green industry, plant people in the green industry, to keep it fairly professional. And I think sometimes this field gets maybe a little bit looked down upon because we play in the dirt. And and that's not really the case. Some of us do like to play in the dirt. I like to play in the dirt. But having some kind of background in plants helps. I think it helps you do more professional work. I think it helps you kind of know what you're talking about and be able to answer questions well for clients and stuff like that. That being said, depending on what you want to do, you don't need a degree for that. There are plenty of ways to go and get, um, you know, education on plants. There's a ton of material on the internet and there are short courses you can take. There's all kinds of stuff that does not involve getting a four or more your degree. And so if you want to go work at a garden center or start a business with plants, I know there's lots of people that start, you know, plant-based businesses, whether they are buying and selling plants or starting little nurseries. And I've heard a lot of people talking about starting like coffee shop nurseries, which I think is such a dope idea. Those things go perfectly together. I would envision if I was going to do something like that, I would have a front end that has like a bookstore and coffee shop, and then in the back, a little greenhouse where you could buy houseplants and and stuff like that, vegetables and all of those things, because that kind of combines all of my interests. Now, music too. You have music playing. That works. Anyway, so I, I think that there's a lot you can do without a higher degree in plant science. Now, I think, again, it depends a little bit what you mean by plant science. If you are trying to get into a research position, if you're trying to work in... Uh, you know, maybe for a, a big company that do, is doing horticultural development and gene development and breeding and all that, you don't necessarily have to have a degree to be a technician or something with a uh, an operation like that. But you're probably limited on how far you can progress in a company like that. Like they're they're not going to make someone who is non-degreed or doesn't have some kind of an educational background, like a lead researcher or whatever. You know, I, I think there are challenges with um, getting into any kind of a science field without some kind of a science background at an upper level, at a research management level. But if you want to run trials, that's something that uh, a research scientist could te- teach you to do. I know non-degreed people that have gone to work for big seed companies and agricultural and horticultural companies that really have done very well for themselves and gotten into you know, field crew management and, and product project management and all that really without a degree. So you don't have to have one. It just depends a little bit on what you want to do. Uh, if you were a student here at Texas Tech, if you are listening to this and thinking about coming to tech, or if you're a tech student, and you're looking for a job, hey, let's let's chat. 
um, I'd love to hire a greenhouse gremlin. And I'd love to uh, give you some on-the-job training that maybe will help you go forward in your career in plant sciences if that's something you want to do. So that's a really good question. So uh, thanks again to La Petite Shaman, uh, at Rodri3M for that question. Um, the second question, like last time, comes from Dustin from Sandman Stories Presents, at Stories Sandman, which again, you should be listening to that podcast. Uh, and he asked, what are some good household things to put in the soil to improve nutrition? And I am so glad somebody asked this question. I'm so glad, okay? Um, because if you spend any time on the TikTok machine or the internet anywhere, you've probably seen someone dissolve a banana in some water and pour it on their plants because potassium, because everyone knows the bananas have potassium and that should help your plants grow, right? Really what you're going to be growing is fruit flies. You want fruit flies? That's how you get fruit flies and fungus gnats, them too, and probably some ants. So this is something that comes up a lot. What can I put in my plants to um, fertilize them, to improve the uh, uh, quality of the soil? And the fact of the matter is pretty much anything, but not directly, okay? I I don't want you to take your leftover cup of coffee and pour it on your plants and think that that's going to fertilize them. They may pull a little bit of nitrogen from that, but that's not directly how it works, For plants to pull nutrition out of the soil, to pull soil nutrients out, they have to be in a plant-available form. So while, yes, a cup of coffee or uh, has a a lot of nitrogen in it or your weird banana water probably does have some potassium in it, it is not in a form that that plant can take up. So we have to go through a process. So if you want to take your household items, table scraps, whatever – Get into composting, y'all. There's a lot of ways to do it. You can make compost tea, which is essentially sort of the runoff water from the composting process. Uh, You mix that with water. That is a very uh, nutrient-rich solution that you can put on your plants as a fertilizer. You can also go through the process of composting and add compost to even your indoor plants uh, or outdoor plants that will add to the nutrition of the soil. As those things break down, those tend to be in plant-available forms. Let's think about nature. And I think this is an important way to look at most of the plant things that we do. Is there someone out there making banana water to put on their plants? No, right? That is not how plant-available potassium comes about. Instead, it comes about through the degradation process by soil microorganisms. And that process is what we call composting, right? Soil microorganisms from bacteria to fungi and everything in between break down those food elements, those organic compounds, and then eventually they end up in a form that the plants can take up. So I don't really recommend just adding things straight from, you know, your house into your plants to fertilize them. Um, A lot of times you can cause a lot of secondary or unintended problems through that. But I am all for composting all for composting. Now, there are some things that you can add at planting or uh, throughout the process of growing plants that do help, that are usually um, sort of used as either organic or holistic. I don't really love the word organic, by the way, in this context, but that's a whole other episode at some point. We're going to get to that. I'll probably get hate mail for that one. But um, there's a lot of things you can use. So so, uh, cornmeal works reasonably well as a 
herbicide or insecticide. Uh, bone meal is a good source of potassium and phosphorus sometimes. Um, Epsom salt sometimes is used at uh, planting of tomatoes. That's something that people recommend. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't do a whole lot of that kind of stuff. I have used bone meal. I think that uh, that works actually pretty well at planting as a quote-unquote root stimulator. Really, it's just phosphorus and potassium, which is a thing that drives root growth. So there are some sort of household items. I don't know how much bone meal you have lying around, but you know, unless you're going to bake it into bread. Are you a, are you a giant? Oh, no. Are you an ogre? Okay, anyway. Um, I think that, that we should be focusing on composted materials. Um, there are some great organic uh, fertilizers if that's something that's uh, important to you. I think there's a lot of great synthetic fertilizers out there. There is nothing wrong with going and buying some um, miracle Grow, and they're not sponsoring me, but they should. Hey, Scots, if you would like to sponsor me, I'm here. Uh, there's nothing wrong with going and buying some inorganic fertilizer, mixing it up and putting it on your plants. I don't think we should be afraid of those things. Um, but if that's not what you want to do, if you don't want to use synthetic fertilizers for whatever reason, uh, maybe we'll talk one of these days about where our synthetic fertilizers come from. It just struck me that that would probably be a good episode. Um, then you don't have to. There's plenty of other products. But I, my, my recommendations there are, aside from the the few things that maybe you can add directly, if you've got a household item, a table scrap, whatever, compost it, compost it well, and then you can add nu- nutrition to the soil. Our next question is from Ellen Weatherford from Just the Zoo of Us podcast. Uh, at just the zoo of us on pretty much everywhere. Okay. Ellen is good people. And if you haven't listened to our uh, episode from a couple of weeks ago about Pokemon and the types of plants that inspired them, you should do that. That was a really fun one. I think that's one that you'll really enjoy. I'm really proud of it. Again, that is grass type Pokemon and the real life plants that inspired them. So Ellen asks, what kind of music do my plants like? Uh, they're, they're fans of ska. I think it's the trumpets. I think as far as I'm concerned, plants really have a thing for, for trumpets, which by the way, if you don't listen to ska, take like punk and add a horn section and maybe a little bit of jazz in there and some blues in there too. And you've got ska, which is real weird. And I love it. I I love it. Uh, anyway, I think that my plants like all kinds of music. They less like whatever I happen to be listening to, which in all honesty is probably normally a podcast or an audiobook. Um, I listen to a little bit of all kinds of music. Um, probably, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be really surprised by this, but like like folk, acoustic rock, um, some maybe like jazzy rock kind of stuff is my favorite. Uh, but I listen to a little bit of everything. Um, but the question that comes up a lot, because there have been experiments done on this in the past, is do plants respond well to music? Is, is music something that helps plants grow? And there have been some weird studies done over time where either some people play classical music to their plants or talk mean to them or uh, play rock music or something else to see how well does that plant grow? Is there an impact? Is there an effect? In fact, even the Mythbusters, which, by the way, is such a good show, was such a good show. I loved the Mythbusters. Mythbusters actually was very important to me. It mattered to me. But they did an experiment on one episode where they took a bunch of plants and they put some in like cages or whatever. And they, they do reasonably well thought out science sometimes. And they played classical music to some 
and they played uh, hard rock or metal to, to others. And then they had a group of plants that they either said nice words to or mean words to. And then they had a control group that had no additional sound applied, right? And what they found was that the rock music plants did the best, uh, followed by the classical music plants. And then third, there was no difference between the um, nice words and the mean words, but the spoken to plants did next. And the ones that were the smallest and the had the least growth were the control plants that had no uh, no additional sounds applied to them. Is applied the right word? I don't know. It doesn't matter. So what's happening here? Are plants listening to music? Do they like hard rock uh, better than classical music or some of these other things? This is pretty hotly contested. If it sounds like pseudoscience, in some ways it is, right? I, I don't I don't know that plants are listening to music and they like one over the other. Or, you know, toxic rock music's gonna kill your plants, and if you say mean words to them, uh, they're gonna do worse. I don't I don't really think it works that way. I think there's a couple of things going on here. Again, let's go back to nature. Let's go back to what happens in nature. Is nature silent? No. No, it's not. There's always sound. There's wind that moves the plants around. There's the sound of animals and uh, uh, insects, and which insects are animals, and, and all kinds of other things that affect the way things grow. Things do not grow in a vacuum, y'all. And so there's some likelihood that just the movement of the sounds that are coming out of a speaker will help an indoor plant grow. Because you probably don't have a lot of wind in your house, do you? or in your greenhouse. Those plants are pretty still all the time. And it turns out we know pretty well, it is reasonably well documented, that movement in plants as they're developing leads to stronger stems, it leads to faster growth, better movement of compounds throughout the plant, better water uptake, higher fruit set and yield, and all of those things. So it is, it's a complicated thing. There's even a lot of evidence that as different insects approach a plant, the sound waves, the vibrations that those insects are putting out by their wing beats or whatever else will cause the plant to react differently. So, for example, if one species of bumblebee comes to land on a, a flower that maybe has a longer proboscis and can reach down farther into the plant to, you know, get nectar and things like that, it may stimulate those nectaries to work in some way versus another. And if a bumblebee lands that maybe can't go as far down into the flower, has a shorter little tongue, it may increase nectar production or sugar water production by that plant. That plant is trying to get pollinated as well as possible, uh, and that relationship forms over time. So there is some evidence that actual vibrations and sounds can cause plants to react. I think it's probably more just the overall movement. If they are vibrated in a certain way, you know, by a more energetic type of music like rock music, there's a chance that it's changing the dynamics of the way that pollen grains form, of the ways that compounds, nutrients, sugars move within the plant, and it can cause some growth effects. So I think there is something to it. But I don't know that it matters as much what kind of music is moving your plants rather than your plants are being moved. Music moves us all, folks. Okay, time for a break. We'll be back in a minute. 
Well, hey there. Welcome to the mid-roll. Glad to see you here again. I hope you're enjoying this episode. And again, if you've got some questions for April's Q&A episode, please send them along. I would love to try to answer them. Um, you should be following Plant Apology all the places. On Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, search for Plant Apology, which is Anthropology with the PL, slapped right on the front. Look for the bristle cone pine with the green background, and that will be me. That's me. Hi, it's me, Vikram, at Plant Apology. I'm also on the TikTok machine, for better or worse, as at the Plant Prof. And for some reason, it's gotten to be pretty popular. I have like 21,000 followers now, and it's growing quickly. So if there's content you'd like to see on TikTok, hey, hit me up there too. Let me know. I would love to produce content that you want to see. Mostly it's nonsense. Mostly it's me making fun of five-minute crafts and showing you the doodles that my students do. But uh, I'm also trying to do some interesting plant information and things like that as well. Thank you so much to our sponsors. The first one is Forest Proud. Forest Proud is a nonprofit organization that focuses on forest-based climate solutions. They connect industry folks with the public and education and everyone in between through great messaging and great resources. Go check out forestproud.org for more information. If you head to the shop at forestproud.org slash shop, and find some cool swag. They've got some really neat t-shirts and stickers and stuff. Use the promo code PLANTHROPOLOGY at checkout for 10% off your order. Thanks to Forest Proud for supporting the show and for being a part of it. Also, thanks so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science. This could not be done without you. Couldn't do it. Could not do it. This is a fulfilling part of my life. And the fact that my department lets me do it as part of my job is the coolest thing. If you'd like to support the show, you can uh, first and foremost tell a friend about it. That's the best way to help a podcast grow is to tell your friends about it. So share on social media. Tell your in-person, in-real-life friends. Uh, you can also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or CastBox or Podchaser or anywhere else. I wear a size five-star review if you'd like to get me something nice. Uh, you can also email me at planthropologypod at gmail.com. If you've got tips, um, requests for more content, complaints, praise, anything else, shoot me an email and I would love to chat with you. Finally, if you want to financially support the show, you can head to buymeacoffee.com slash planthropology. And for the price of a coffee, you'll buy me a coffee. Helps keep this show on the internets and on those there airwaves that enter your ear holes into your brain case. Also, you can buy some cool Planthropology merch. Go over to planthropologypod.com and click on merch, and it'll take you to my Redbubble store where you can get some cool T-shirts, stickers, hats, water bottles, mugs, really whatever else that you want. We've got some great designs on there, and there are a lot more coming. Hey, I don't have a trailer for you today. But I do work on another podcast with my good friend, Rachel Boyd. Uh, Rachel Boyd is a producer here at Texas Tech for our NPR affiliate, KTTZ. Um, so support your public radio, by the way. Uh, that's a thing that we should all be able to get behind. But Rachel is the host, producer, editor, lifeblood behind that show. And I get to say nerdy plant things on it as well. So go check out the In The Grow podcast it's anywhere you find your podcast it's really a lot of fun we've talked about everything from starting seeds to low-cost ways to get 
more plants and seed swaps and do all those kinds of things. I think there is a mushroom episode coming out tomorrow as you're listening to this on the day it dropped. Um, But yeah, go check out the In The Grow podcast anywhere that podcasts live. And uh, let me know what you think. I'm really proud of it. I really like it. And I'd like to know that you like it too. So anyway, uh, hook up with Planthropology. Go listen to In The Grow. And let's answer a few more questions. Okay, we are back with three more questions. I I don't know that I'm always going to do six questions per episode of this, but that seems to work out pretty well time-wise. So three more for you. Um, The fourth question, or the first question after the break, whatever, is by Ashley the Ologist, at the Angry Ologist on Twitter. Ashley's podcast, Get Out Alive, by the way, is one of my favorite shows. It's about animal attacks, which I know sounds maybe gruesome, and at times it is, but I think that Ashley and Nick do such a good job of giving the victims of these attacks a little bit of justice through it in terms of the way that they're treated. They're not laughed at usually. They're not looked down upon. I think that it's handled very well. It's a fun show. Ashley's a great host, and and Nick is too, but I'm giving Ashley all the credit for this. And uh, you should be listening to Get Out Alive. Go do the thing. So Ashley asks, as someone who is extremely eager for spring, when is the earliest I can start indoor plants? And what types of plants can be easily started indoors? This is such a good question. For most things, I think we generally recommend four to six weeks before your last frost date, at least for your warm season stuff. And a lot of times people who are going to start a spring garden, whether it's flowers or vegetables or herbs or anything in between, four to six weeks is a good amount of time. There's a couple of caveats there. I think four to six weeks is a good amount of time, provided you can give them enough light and enough temperature. So in a dark space, six weeks is a long time for a little plant to start to grow. And if it's not getting enough sunlight, it's going to try to get leggy. And what I mean by leggy is the space between the leaves, what we call the internode. Uh, A node is any point of attachment, so the space between those nodes is the internode. We'll start to get really long. The reason for that is plants only have limited strategies for finding sunlight, right? They can't get up and move. I don't care, care what you've seen on TikTok plants and trees don't walk. It doesn't, it's not, it's not, it's not a thing, y'all. They're not, they're not running around the forest. Okay. So if they need more sunlight, they only have a few tricks. They can lean down and out away from the canopies of other plants, which is pretty common, and they can grow taller. So those internode lengths start to lengthen and the plant gets sort of stretched out, which can lead to a lack of chlorophyll. It can lead to weaker stems and a lot of other things. So if you keep your baby plants, your seeds that you're starting inside in a low light environment for too long, they get really leggy. Then when you go to harden them off or plant them out in the garden, they're not strong enough to stand up to wind and the elements and all of those kinds of things. So you tend to see a lot of dieback in your plants. So as long as you can give them plenty of sunlight, really regardless of the amount of time, I would say four to six weeks before you intend to plant them. So for us here in Lubbock, we're, my staff is actually, if I look out the window of my office, is out there starting our vegetables for our plant sale and for our spring garden, like as we speak right now, happening right meow. And uh, our average annual last frost date is about April 10th. So we're not quite on it yet. We're, what, three weeks before. But our plant sale is May 7th. So we're about six weeks before that. 
Now, I can cheat a little bit because I have a greenhouse and growth regulators and some other stuff. So I can really control them however I want to in terms of how leggy they get or how bushy they get before we go out. So probably we'll let them grow in the greenhouse about three to four weeks, and then we'll move them under one of our partial shade structures out behind the greenhouse and let them harden off for a couple of weeks before the sale. That lets them move around, just like we were talking about earlier with our music. Those stems moving and blowing around in the wind, wind, in the wind, I'm leaving that in. It's so windy. Um, (laughs) Anyway, have you seen that meme with the fox? I can't read the meme to you because this is a family-friendly show, but you should go look up, type in Wimdy with an M and Fox, and you'll get the best meme in the world. Anyway, the wind moving those plants around will make for stronger stems, better movement of of materials through the plant. So generally, yeah, if if you're in a place where your last average freeze is mid to late April, uh, it's the end of March right now, you're more than good to go to start your plants. But I recommend about a month. About a month is usually a good target. And what types of plants can easily be started indoors? This is such a good question. Uh, Herbs, uh, vegetables, eh, flowers, really most things that you would want to go out with, you can start earlier indoors and transplant out. Solanaceous crops like eggplants, tomatoes, peppers, those kinds of things do really well. Really well at being started indoors and transplanting. Sometimes you're going to run into problems. Actually, usually you're going to run into problems if you're trying to transplant a grassy crop like corn. The root systems are different. They grow different. And transplanted corn usually doesn't go very well, right? So you're going to want to mostly start your broadleaf plants. You can also start like onion sets and garlics and things like that. And those do transplant fairly well. Um, But yeah, about a month and mostly anything you want. Another thing that maybe doesn't transplant super well is wildflowers. Um, So zinnias, echinacea, uh, the wildflowers vary depending on where you are. But things that are more native plants, you don't really necessarily have to start them early. You can if you want, but they'll grow from seed perfectly well. Marigolds, a lot of your composites, you really don't want to transplant. They they do just as well growing from seed outdoors. Good question. Um. Hey, it's Tyler again, Tyler Herman, Archduke Tyler, um, who is the host of the What's the Alternative podcast. So Tyler asks, live oak trees often have branches that rest on the ground. Is there some sort of benefit to not needing to support the weight or are they just lazy or is it just a happy, aesthetically pleasing accident? Are there other large trees that do this as often as live oaks? Um, And Tyler's follow up to this was that live oaks are the best tree. And I, I don't think I can argue with that. That is a great truth of the South. I think Tyler's in Louisiana. So definitely some giant old live oaks there. So live oaks have really long branches and they tend to grow sort of by themselves out in a field to a certain extent. If you've ever been under a live oak, the thing that they produce probably the best is baby live oaks. So they have these sprawling canopies and a lot of times up under the canopy, you'll get these little live oaks either coming up from acorn or from root. And over time, they'll shade out the ones closest to the trunk, and then you get new live oaks that grow out towards the end of the canopy, and they establish, and you get these big copses of uh, these giant trees that look like they were put on a plantation. Sometimes they were. Um, But even out in nature, you get these big sprawling canopies with these big limbs. So because these trees tend to be wider than they are tall by a fair margin, they're not especially large or tall trees, 
um, they put out these sprawling limbs. And because of that, as they're growing horizontally to try to get their own sunlight, these limbs get pretty heavy and they start to slowly bend towards the ground. Now, the main scaffold limbs that go straight up, they even will start to arch just a little bit, but you'll get two or three large ones that come up fairly vertically in the middle and these big sprawling limbs. Um, There's some debate about this. I would say largely it's just that those limbs get heavy, they hit the ground, and then where they hit the ground, they start to turn and grow upwards again. So normally what you'll see is these big, long, huge branches, like bigger around than you are, um, growing towards the ground, then they'll hit the ground and they turn back up. And sometimes they'll look like waves. It's really just for support. And a lot of times in arboretums or in places where these trees are managed, you'll see wood posts or whatever under some of these bends in the branches to try to help them stay up. Oftentimes, it's possible that where those limbs hit the ground, they can produce adventitious roots. So adventitious roots are just roots that grow where they're not normally expected or supposed to. So there are some thoughts that in order to support a huge system, a huge tree like a a massive hundreds of years old live oak, that the main root system may be insufficient to feed some of these longer limbs that arch out. So there is a thought that maybe where these branches hit the ground, they can and often do develop roots. It could be a strategy to let these branches get longer and uh, essentially add another source of nutrient and water uptake along the way. What the truth is, I don't know. Either way, it's a cool aesthetic thing and they look super awesome. Are there other trees that do this as often as live oaks? I'm going to say no. Um, You do see some, and it's certainly possible. Olives do tend to sprawl, but they don't arch quite as much as this. Uh, I see it most commonly in live oaks. And if there's a tree that you have in your yard that you're like, oh no, this tree does it, let me know. I would love to hear more examples of this. But yeah, live oaks, super cool trees. I think they are probably the best tree in the South for sure. Um, And finally, our last question for today is one that came in actually today. And this is from Rebecca, who I was not sure if I should refer to as Sufyan's mom, because this is Sufyan's mom. Sufyan is at Honk If You're Hori on uh, uh, Twitter. Hori like a Hori bat, H-O-A-R-Y, I think. Anyway, um, but Rebecca has said that she would choose to be identified by her own name, which I think is completely reasonable. So Rebecca asks, what are differences between ornamental and fruiting cherry trees? Why do some bear fruit and some don't? It's a good question. Uh, is it because of different bloom times, different locations, different species, different varieties? Um, or are they the same plant that just maybe bloom in different places at different times? This is a really good question. And The answer is probably somewhere in between, but generally they're different varieties. So if you look at your fruit tree, most of our fruit trees are grafted, okay? About six inches up from the the top of the root ball, you're going to see a weird bend in it where scion wood or the fruiting part of the plant was grafted to the rootstock. That's to take advantage of the best quality roots and disease resistance, whatever else, from the roots and the best quality fruit. A lot of times, these rootstocks themselves may flower a whole bunch, but the fruit are low quality. So sometimes it's just well selected for rootstocks that um, maybe flower really well. 
and they select for more flowering and instead of the fruiting and you get a fruiting variety. Sometimes they're sterile. Sometimes they're all, you know, female flowers or male flowers because some flowers are distinctly male or female. Some are not. And uh, a lot of times it's just that they are grown for that purpose, right? They over time have been selected for a flowering effect instead of a fruiting effect. So a lot of our, our flowering plants, flowering crab apples, flowering cherries, flowering pears, whatever, which, by the way, cut down your Bradford pears. Here's another plug from that. If you want to hear more about why you should cut down your Bradford pears, go back a couple episodes and listen to uh, my interview with Dr. Dave Coyle. It's it's great. We talk about shrimp. Anyway, so uh, they're different plants. They're grown for different purposes. But you will see fruits sometimes on our flowering varieties. They're just small and hard and like marbles and all of that. You don't really want to eat them. Birds will sometimes still eat them. Wildlife will sometimes still eat them. But they're just there for the ornamental effect. But this actually leads to her second question, which is what are self-pollinated plants and do they still require bees? And they're, these are sort of related things. Okay. So let's talk really quick about the botany of flower structure. Real quick, okay? Flowers have four main parts. They have sepals, which are leaf-like structures under the flower or under the corolla of the flower. They have petals, which together are called the corolla. They have uh, pistils, which are the female reproductive structures, and stamens, which are the male reproductive structures. If a flower has all four of those parts, we call it a complete flower. It has all the parts. Now, if it's missing one or more of those, we call it incomplete. Another way that we classify flowers is as perfect or imperfect. So a perfect flower has both the pistils and the stamens, both the male and female reproductive structures on the same flower. If they're missing one, they're imperfect. An imperfect flower may be what we call monoecious, which means there are male and female flowers on the same plant, or dioecious, which means there are distinctly male and female plants. And a lot of fruit trees are this way, where you'll have like a male cherry and a female cherry, where um, all of the flowers on the male cherry are staminate, which means they have the male reproductive structures, and all the flowers on the female plant are pistillate, which means they have all the female reproductive structures. In cases like that, they have to cross-pollinate. There's no other way to do it. You have to have... Um, pollen going from the, the male plants to the female plants, or you never get a fruit, right? For plants with perfect flowers, though, oftentimes they can self-pollinate. Not always. Sometimes there are extra steps required, or there's different types within that even, and they can't self-pollinate. They still have to cross-pollinate. But let's talk about peaches. We've talked about peaches before on here. Uh, my family is a little peach orchard. Peaches have perfect flowers, and they are self-fertile which means they can pollinate themselves. Now, each flower has um, both the male and female reproductive structures, and usually they get pollinated from one flower to another on the same plant. Um, sometimes uh, monoecious plants that have male and female separate flowers on the same plant are also self-fertile. They don't require bees. Generally, the flowers will just shed pollen either uh, within the same flower or across flowers, and they can pollinate themselves just fine. But let's think about it from a biological standpoint, a diversity standpoint. In biology and in society and in almost every other thing, diversity is good. Diversity uh, benefits at large biological systems and societies. I'm just going to put a pin in that and or period at the end of that and call that good. Diversity is good, period. Okay. So if you are a plant that 
only can self-reproduce, you are not recombining genetics in any way, right? And you end up eventually with a weak line, right? You, you, you don't get uh, adaptations or evolution towards new diseases, new insects. The genetics may recombine a little bit, but you're pulling from a narrow genetic pool. So over time, you'll start to see mutations. You'll start to see a lot of the same problems that we deal with in, in breeding in animals, um, weird chromosomal effects and things like that. So a lot of times we get really weak plants if they all self-pollinate year after year after year. So even though they don't necessarily need bees, quote unquote, they still do better. We see in peach production that if bees are present and if cross-pollination does occur between varieties, even within, between um, different individuals in the same variety, we'll see a bigger fruit, sweeter fruit, uh, healthier trees, and sometimes even overall yield uh, increases of 20 to 40%. That's pretty substantial, y'all. So while a self-pollinated plant doesn't necessarily have to be pollinated by bees or another pollinator, they can do the thing themselves. Um, they're better off with pollination. So, hey, let's save the pollinators. And hey, let's make sure that all of our ecosystems, both the social and biological ones, are as diverse as possible. How about that? I think that sounds good. Yo, that's all the questions I have. Those were some really good questions. And uh, I talked about them longer than I intended to. And I'm not sorry. I'm not. I, you know you like you know you like it you know you enjoy this so uh, thank you so much to everyone that sent in a question for this month I've actually got a bank of a few more that people have sent in over the past couple months that I will probably get to next month but if you have a question for me email me at planthropologypod at gmail.com or shoot me a message on social media I will put up posts about mid-month most of the time uh, calling for questions so that would be great if you would do that I would love to answer your questions um, y'all thanks for listening Thanks for being a part of this. You know how much I love you. Thanks again to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science and to Forest Proud for sponsoring this show. But once more, thanks the most to you, the listener, and uh, for making this a thing that is a part of your week. It matters a lot to me, and I hope it matters to you. So I hope that you keep being a really cool plant people, my favorite plant people, and I hope that you keep being kind to one another. Uh, if you haven't been kind to one another so far, maybe give that a shot. It's kind of fun. We'll be back next week with our next installment of Tree Talk, where we're going to talk about spring and what happens at bud break and what happens as trees start to produce flowers and leaves and all of those things and things you can do during the winter to help sh make sure that they have a happier spring. Until then, y'all be good, be safe, be healthy, and we will talk very soon. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.